This podcast includes frank discussions of mature themes that may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. This podcast is intended to provide encouragement and support through personal storytelling. The views expressed are the opinions of the participants and not intended to be medical, legal, clinical, or professional information or advice of any kind. Welcome to the Bubble Hour. 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 Welcome, 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 welcome to the Bubble Hour. I own it. I did that. Not proud, but that was me. And when I face it, I take back a little dignity. Not looking for excuses. I just want to be free from the power. Weakness head on me. Jean McCarthy, and you're listening to The Bubble Hour. Hello, and welcome to The Bubble Hour Archives, a treasure trove of episodes ranging from 2012 to 2022. I'm recovery advocate and author Jean McCarthy. I joined The Bubble Hour as a host in season two. Together with other hosts over the years, Ellie, Lisa, Amanda, and Catherine, we all extend to you our gratitude for listening and a heartfelt wish that this podcast will find a welcome home in your recovery toolkit. The resources mentioned on the show are available at thebubblehour.com, including information on the online support group called the BFB, or Booze Free Brigade, often mentioned on the show. Now, if you're hearing this message, you're listening to one of our free archived episodes, and we'll make sure that there are loads of these available for you to enjoy. These are partial versions of the original recordings, and if you want to hear more, you can listen to full versions and the entire back catalog ad-free by joining us on Patreon. So just head to patreon.com slash thebubblehour to learn more. I'll also put a link in the show notes to make it even easier for you to find that. So, all right then, enjoy the show. Hi, everybody. This is Catherine, and welcome to the Bubble Hour, where real people tell real stories of addiction and recovery. I'm joined tonight by my co-host, Amanda. Hi, Amanda. Hi, Catherine. And I'm so happy to introduce our new co-host, Jean. Hi, Jean. Hello, Catherine. How are you? Great. Welcome. So glad you're here. Hi, Jean. Hi, Amanda. Hi. So ten, We're thrilled tonight to have we'll you. Be talking about, tonight we'll be talking about a sacred part of life, grief, and how we experience it now that we're sober. In recovery, we're promised a safe landing, not a calm passage. We will have to experience grief like anyone in this life. Grief can arise from many of life's challenging situations, such as the ending of a relationship, the death of a loved one, the loss or change of jobs, or a serious illness or operation, even getting sober, giving up our addictions can give rise to grief. And now that we're sober, we will sit with many strong emotions, anger, frustration, fear, sadness, guilt, hopelessness, relief, loneliness. And although grief can be a major trigger for relapse, that old impulse to numb our feelings, we find that in sobriety, we can handle hard things. We seek fellowship with others in recovery. We use our tools, and we have compassion for our grieving hearts. Tonight, we'll be talking to Michelle and Jen, who are healing their grieving hearts in recovery. Hi, ladies. Welcome to the show. Hi, Catherine. Hi. Welcome. We're so glad to have you here. So with loving kindness, we will share this journey and find that our hearts are capable of holding the sacredness of grief. So I'd like to start by welcoming Jean as our new co-host. We're so excited to have you. And why don't you start by telling us a little bit of your story of recovery, which I know includes some thoughts on grieving wine once you gave it up for for life. I certainly did grieve wine, as I think we all do to some extent. But let me just start by telling you a little bit about who I am and and why I'm here on the Bubble Hour as a co-host. So my name is Jean. And I'm a person in recovery, and for me, that means I haven't used alcohol since March of 2011. And I live in Western Canada in a fairly small city, so online support has played a huge role in my recovery. Blogs, podcasts, especially the Bubble Hour, 
And uh, there's a lot of great resources out there that have been very helpful to me. Additionally, I write a recovery blog called Unpickled, and that chronicles my journey from day one to present of, of going through the changes in my life that came with sobriety. I'm the last person anyone would expect to be in recovery, or so I thought when I began this journey. My husband and I own a business, and we have three sons that are grown now, super mom and super working woman and leader in my community and uh, very active in my industry. And I volunteer on boards, and I also write music and, and record and perform. And although I recently gave up performing live as part of my recovery strategy because it was just too much adrenaline, it was really wearing me out. So I am the typical vision of a woman who just goes 100 miles an hour all day long and then used wine as that brick on my head at the end of the day to slow me down and just provide that quick shift into into the making supper and the quiet evenings at home and just, just putting the brakes on. And what I found is that over the course of a decade, it took uh, not only bigger bricks and more of the bricks, but that it, it, I got to where just my not nice, relaxing evening glass of wine was really an evening of just quietly drinking heavily alone and silently. And my family didn't realize, and I knew that I was in trouble because I, I knew it was getting way on me. And I, as a business person, live in a world where you can make a chart and do some research and put a plan together and solve any problem. And uh, I tried that, and I was horrified that I just could not rein it in. And I knew that it was getting really a dangerous situation, that I wouldn't be able to keep it a secret for much longer. Like I said, I thought I was, I thought that everyone would just be shocked if they knew, but a lot of people don't know. But what I realize now is that there's nothing shocking about a superwoman having a secret. I now know that there are millions of other women out there just like me, just like you ladies, that are amazing accomplishments and are overachieving tendencies and all the things we think make it so impossible for us to be alcoholics is really part of a personality pattern that often accompanies addictive personalities. So I thought I was right. the most surprising alcoholic in the world, and in fact, I just was very ordinary and, and common in, in the profile. So that awareness really drives the passion for me to help spread the news of recovery and break through those stigmas that prevent people from asking for help. The shame and the isolation that we experience in addiction, I think, is unnecessary in this day and age of information. And shame kept me drinking and information, misinformation kept me hiding. And I just believe with all my heart that speaking out and reaching out saves lives, and that's why I'm so happy to be on board with you here on the Bubble Hour and just give another voice of recovery and of hope. That's so terrific to have you here. <clears throat> guys. And that that um, all sounds really familiar. Yeah, it just yes, it does. <laughs> it's almost yeah, a long time right looking down. <laughs> So this whole idea of the kind of superhero fantasy, and then I recently read that the actress who played uh, Wonder Woman on television is actually in recovery. So I was like, even Wonder Woman literally (laughs) couldn't do it. (laughs) Yeah, so it's still true. So as I I said, I do blog, and when I heard that grief was the topic for tonight, I, I really remembered going through grief early in my recovery and it shocked me that it the, the power that I greased wine with was so surprising to me. It, it, it was, I, I was, my heart ached. And so I, I pulled up a few of the, the words that I wrote at that time to share with you. And it takes me back to, to what that was like. So uh, at three weeks sober, I wrote the following about how surprising that grief was. I wrote this. I expected to feel triumphant. I really thought that the success of each day without alcohol would make me happy. Instead, I'm grieving the companionship of a glass or four of wine. Rather than missing the old me, my overwhelming sadness is for the lovely bottles and pretty glasses and sophisticated shots and selections and pairings all the swirling and anticipation and, oh, I must stop. I miss it so much. It hurts me physically. My chest aches 
and I have a lump in my throat. I never expected I would be so sad, and the misery further confirms that I needed to quit. I know that feelings will pass, and all I have to do is breathe and wait. Wow. Wow, hey? Yes. I, have, I, I can feel yeah. my chest <laughs> going at the memory really of them. But really, is grieving a friend, isn't it? It's our constant companion when we're drinking. I didn't think that I had really anthropomorphized. Is that how you say that word? I didn't think mm. that I had put so much of a, a relationship into wine, but it really, I really had personified, I think, a friend and a lover and mm. someone who mm. had my back. And, and I really missed that relationship. I love that so, word you just said about having your back. Thing, yeah. but that I resonated. That resonated. Yeah. I felt like alcohol had my back. I did. That, yeah. that really hit me. That really, that yeah. was great. And it, so, yeah. I, I feel like it did have my back for a while until it didn't. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, oh, yeah. Really, then it, then it, then had, it, then it had my down. self. It, but, yeah, yeah, it had a knife in my back. back. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going to read you a couple more things. I, I also then, a few weeks after that, I went on my first romantic getaway with my husband. And in sobriety, we've been married for yonks by this time, of course, but this was the first time that the two of us had gone away since I quit drinking, and I was really nervous. I think everyone's nervous about that first, you know, time that you have to just go and be really vulnerable away from home. <clears throat> so this was what I wrote about it, and I think this is really insightful, just the, the difference between three weeks and six weeks. I wrote this. On this trip, I didn't so much miss having wine in our suite. It was during the meals that I felt the absence of my old friend, Sauvignon Blanc, the go-to order that made every meal better. Two of the lovely restaurants we visited were advertising special five-course meals with wine pairing hosted by the chef. Two months ago, we would have been in for this, my husband being an avid foodie and me the avid wine drinker. This got me. We wouldn't be doing that again, ever. I felt guilt, like a weight on my chest. I messed up something we both enjoyed by taking it too far. Stupid me and my stupid inability not to drink so much. I recognized the guilt as useless, but I knew I had to feel the grief in order for them both to pass. I spent a day or two trying to feel grief without guilt, but it isn't easy to separate them. So tell me what you think of that grief and guilt rolled up into one. Oh, wow. Yeah, so did. I, I get that, and I saw the little bit of anger in there, too. <laughs> so all those, Definitely. Those, those feelings, it was just like, oh, my God, why couldn't I control this? And why did I have to push it? Does it the, oh, I remember that feeling so well. Why did I have to push it so far? Like, I forever wanted to just maintain my level so that I could, can, I didn't have to give up my friend. <laughs> and, it was, right. and, but in the guilt, yeah, I, I can totally identify with that. <laughs> so much of my drinking was about definitely not feeling uh, worthwhile. So this part where you're saying you're just self-flagellating, you know, stupid, that definitely came out for me because now I wasn't sort of masking my feelings of not feeling worthwhile. So I, I certainly had those feelings of, oh, what a dope. But it, it was one of the things that I was able to really turn around after a while. But, boy, it was hard to carry at first. I think it's hard to, about feeling that dope that you couldn't control your drinking. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, I think mm -hmm. that's part two of the denial before we really realize that this is a disease that couldn't have controlled this. We sort right, of blame right. ourselves, like, stupid me, I ruined it. But it's still, I think at that stage for me, I, I can tell that I was still in a place where I thought I should have been able to control it. I really hadn't understood yet that my brain was altered permanently by the alcohol. Yeah. And, mm -hmm. and that... I think some of that anger really lifted once I understood that and realized that I had no power in that situation. Do you ever wish for a little bit of recovery inspiration on the go? 
Bubbles is a new podcast that brings you the best bits of the Bubble Hour podcast in quick little episodes, just 15 minutes long, but packed with wisdom, insight, and encouragement to live your life wholeheartedly and alcohol-free. Look for Tiny Bubbles wherever you get podcasts and subscribe today. Tiny Bubbles. Little bits of recovery goodness brought to you by the Bubble Hour. Sometimes all you need is a little pep talk so you can get back to living that beautiful life you're building. I I have one last thought to share with you from my writing, and this is something that I just brought back to me recently, a memory of I was only 20 years old, and it was long before I was drinking much at all. I was just a weekend party girl. I never blacked out. I never really, I never went overboard. The disease hadn't, the pattern hadn't really revealed itself for a long time yet in my life. So I was at my mother's house and I got a phone call that a friend had been struck by a car and killed. And probably one of the first really terrible things that ever happened to me um, at that age. And I hung up the phone, and the first thing my brain did, it made like a line across the room to the liquor cabinet. I think it's in the Matrix where you follow the bullet across. (laughs) It was like, yeah, my, I was like this golden arrow just went pow across the room to the liquor cabinet, and I was like, I want a drink, and it was completely out of character for me. But I went and I poured a shot of uh, whiskey, something I never normally would have drank at that age. And I drank it, and I tried to drink it, and it was terrible, of course. So I did it in the sink, and I thought, that was weird. What did I do that for? And then I went on with feeling with this horrible news. But at the time, I just blew it off as, that was stupid. What was that? But now when I think back on that, I really realized that this disease raised its head from its slumber. (laughs) At a very yeah. early age, and even though it didn't revisit and, and make itself known in my life for a lot of years, now, where I'm at now, I can look back on that and say, man, like, that was a strong, powerful urge that was present even then. And it's important for me to understand that and to know that because in the almost three years now since I've quit drinking, nothing really horrible has happened. We've all had bad days. Nothing horrible has happened, but I know that things will come because it's life and bad stuff happens in life. So Mm -hmm. it's really important for me to remember that I'm a person who when when I get terrible news, it's possible for me to have that powerful urge. And I have to be ready for that. I need to know that's not a voice to listen to. I think that it's a shocking thing for me to look back on. And I think you guys are going to talk a lot more about this topic, but I just wanted to, to bring up that memory of just being present so early in my life. Yeah, that's amazing, that that gut reaction to just avoid the horror. Yeah. What I think is interesting, too, is we learn that somewhere, like somewhere along the way, and it just that tells you a lot about society. Like we do, for a 20-year-old, 20, 20 granted, everyone starts at a different age, but and like you said, that wasn't a normal thing for you. I just find it really interesting that we learn somewhere along the way that drinking solves these type of things. Like when you're in pain, you go to a drink. Because okay. that Maybe wasn't I saw it in a movie it was, or something. But yeah. <laughs> it sure seems like That's, a good I mean, idea. It <laughs> generally looks prettier in the movies, unfortunately. For, yeah, definitely. For <laughs> us in real life. But I think it's a, a great transition to talk about how things do come up in life, and then how do we deal with, how do we sit with the emotion? So just to move into this part of the show, there's there was some good information that Amanda found on a recovery website just describing some of the issues here. You know, when a loved one passes away, many people will experience a range of emotions, including anger and depression. It's an intense and highly sensitive time. And as we're just talking about, it can also be a high-risk time if someone is trying to overcome an addiction at the same time as, you know, as this loss, there's this potential for relapse. And we may have used alcohol, drugs, or other addictions to numb emotions to try to forget the death of someone we love or to deny that we feel sad. 
And as we find out with all aspects of our sobriety journey, ignoring our emotions was actually damaging to us, making us more angry, resentful, and craving isolation. These, ma- these impulses are magnified in grief. Keeping to a strong, sober program is essential. And so, Amanda, turning it over to you, I, I know you experienced the painful loss in early recovery. So can you share that story with us and tell us how this description maybe resonates with you? Sure. Thanks, Catherine. Yeah, this description resonates me resonates with me in so many ways. I actually wrote out what I was going to say after thinking about this show because I realized this is a huge topic for me and I want to make sure that I don't for take up the whole show and go way off track because I didn't I guess it's yes, our kind of our built in forgetter or not forgetter. Our coping mechanism is I don't think about these things every day, but I've actually, you know, dealt with a lot. So I'm going to, this is somewhat red if I'm a little choppy, but I just want to stay the course. So just to back it up a little bit, I lost my mom to cancer when I was still an active drinker. And so I can certainly attest to burying my feelings in a bottle. I can actually look back now and recognize that the day my father called to tell, tell me that the doctors said there was nothing else they could do for my mom except to put her in hospice care and try to ease her pain. That was the beginning of my bottom, which lasted about a year and a half. The first thing I did when I hung up the phone with my dad was pour myself a glass of wine, and I don't even remember if I cried. I drank through the whole painful process of slowly watching her fade away over the next two months. It was painful and hard, but I thought I was handling it well. I stayed sober during the day and I, when I cared for her and uh, loved her, but I drank myself to sleep every night. I was holding her hand when she passed away, and I convinced myself that she was off to a better place, and I was happy for her that she was finally at peace and no longer in pain. That was all true, but I recognize now that I was not addressing how I felt about losing my precious mother. I made all the arrangements for her, and I even wrote and read her eulogy, but it wasn't until I got sober that I truly grieved her death. I thought I had been grieving her, but what I really was doing was numbing myself. And I just, I know I was just in a real downward spiral. And then two months after losing my mom, my husband asked me for a divorce. And we had not been getting along for quite some time, so I was actually relieved and happy that we were getting a divorce because I just, I just we weren't good. And it was agreeable, as, as agreeable as any divorce can be, but of course we had some major battles as we figured out how to divide up our lives and who would get what. And, but the day he moved out of our house, we were both in tears because we still loved each other, but we had gotten to a place where we couldn't live together anymore. So it was really sad, really painful, but it was, that's what it was. And so, again, I was still drinking at that time. So I don't think I appreciated, for lack of a better term, the fact that I had just gone through two huge losses in a matter of six months and I was falling apart. The wheels finally came off the bus about eight months later, and I hit my bottom and got sober. When I was about three months sober, I had to call my ex-husband to give him to have him sign some papers, and I ended up just spilling my guts and telling him the whole story about me getting arrested and getting sober. And um, he was so happy for me, and he was proud of me, and I made somewhat of an amends to him for my part in our marriage falling apart. And I told him that one day when I was ready, I wanted to sit down with him and have a, do, make a formal amends and just talk about things with him. And he said he was happy to do that if it would help me, but he was just happy that I was staying sober. And that was all I needed to do as far as he was concerned. So a few months after that, I received several cards mailed to my home that were addressed to him, which I found really odd. And so I called him to find out what was going on. And at that time, he told me that they had, the doctors had found, he had a spot on his back, and they had found out it was melanoma. And so they had removed it, and he was home on indefinite leave from work. But he, was, he had a positive outlook and thought things were going to be okay, and they, they were going to do some more tests. And I, I asked him to promise me that he would let me know how things turned out. And I think he called me once, but he did go silent on me, and I thought it was just because everything was okay. But then about six months later, I got a message from someone in his family asking if I knew that he wasn't doing well. 
And I was like, I knew he had cancer, but it's all better. And they're like, no, he's not doing well. So again, I reached out to him and he told me that the cancer had spread everywhere and it was in his bones, it was in his brain, it was everywhere. And they were doing experimental treatment on him and he he was scared, but he was also very hopeful that he would be, I forget what it was, like 1 in 15, it was like 15% success rate, but he said, somebody has to make up that 15%. I kept my hopes up for him and I was hopeful. But then, let's see, about a week later, I got a message from someone in this family, and I guess he just, his body just completely failed. And he wasn't doing well, and it was it was interesting. So it was really awkward. I'm the ex-wife. He's in the hospital. I wanted to go see him, and they said I could, and I was started to go down there, and then they're like, oh, we don't want him there. So it was this really confusing time for me on top of everything. But so I was actually... State. I was delayed in going down there because I just wanted to see him and say goodbye, and he actually died when I was on my way down to the hospital. Mm-hmm. And I was, so I had to just turn around and go home because it was too awkward for me to go to the hospital because I was no longer his wife. And I really didn't know what to do. I think I actually stayed on the side of the road for half an hour just not knowing what to do. So it was really painful, and I I came home, and I pretty much sat at my kitchen table and cried for days. And I lived with my boyfriend at the time, and he's also in recovery, and I just, I could not stop crying. And this was the first loss that I had experienced in sobriety. And I wasn't talking to anyone. I wasn't calling anyone. I, I did find myself isolating, but I just, I couldn't function. And my my boyfriend got nervous enough that he called my sponsor and said, can you give her a call? I don't think she wants to drink or anything like that, but she's just crying nonstop. And my, I remember now, like my emotions were just all over the place. I I was angry and sad and confused and I, I was just really devastated by the loss. I felt regret that I I hadn't been with him to take care of him when he was sick and all these different things. Looking back on that now, I also, I recognize that I was really letting myself feel everything that I needed to feel. And, And that was hugely helpful to me. And I also managed to find gratitude in the fact that we had made peace with each other, which was really important. Like I look back and say, and say, imagine if we had been at a place where we were when we had gotten divorced and then he had just died so suddenly because it was about six months, the whole, when I first talked to him until when he died. But it was what I did when this all happened is after I managed to pull myself together, and I think even in the midst of my crying, I just, like a robot, I just went to my recovery meetings and just talked about it and talked about how I was feeling. I don't I have no idea if I made any sense. I It was a very difficult time for me, but I, it was, I have to say, it was really good to actually feel my feelings and to just go through it. And so just just to get back on track and to stay on track, I, and so I wrote, being in recovery also helped me finally deal with the loss of my mother. When I lost my mom, I was spirit, spiritually bankrupt, as they say. And I don't think I was angry at God, but I didn't think he existed because I didn't understand how, if there was a God, how we could let someone as wonderful as my mom die. And this may sound strange, but when I got sober, people told me that I needed to find a higher power. And I really struggled with that a lot because I'm just not a religious person. But they also told me it didn't have to be God, and it wasn't about religion. And it couldn't be anything, it could be anything that I wanted it to be. So I believe that my mother was my higher power and that she was watching over me and keeping me safe. And I can't even, without someone being in my shoes, explain how much peace that has given me and how that made me finally come to terms with losing my mom because I because of my program of recovery, like I look for what we call like God moments. I look for things that happen in my day that like change my day. And when those things like something something that happened that I know it's that like 
completely changes the course of my life. And I just feel like that's my mom looking out for me. So I feel like I have this constant contact with her. Like I almost, and sometimes I'll just say, oh, thank you, mom. And that's given me some peace. And I don't even know, I think the thing, the information that we looked up, there's no proper way to grieve, but I know for me that's been really healing is to have that, to develop that connection. And I also, this is going to sound really strange, but I came up with this logic, right or wrong, that the reason why that my mom was had passed away at 59 years old, so young, was so that she could look over me because she always worried about me when she was here on earth, but she was never able to take care of me. So it's just it's a strange feeling, but it, it gives me some peace in my heart. And then just one last final thought on this topic is I was actually talking to a friend of mine about this topic today who recently had a relapse. And it's a little too soon and fresh for her to be on the show, but she told me that I could share this. She lost her father very suddenly in sobriety, and by all appearances, she was handling it very well. But since her relapse, she has come to realize that she never really grieved his, his loss. And she didn't pick up a drink at the time, but rather she dealt with it by focusing her energies on a million other things that made her feel good on the outside and made others think that she was doing well. But now after this recent relapse, she's realized that she really had been in denial or not addressing her feelings about the loss of her dad. And that's a good part of what led her to pick up a drink to escape the pain because the feelings that she had just overwhelmingly resurfaced and you never know when that's going to happen. So her advice is to anyone who's experienced loss and recovery is that you don't necessarily have to dig into it immediately because we, like tomorrow, but that sometimes you do need to give yourself a little bit of a break, but it is critical that you do dig in and deal with your feelings about your loss. is a new collection of recovery readings inspired by the bubble hour if you love the encouragement and support you find here on this podcast then this new book is for you visit thebubblehour.com for more information or check the show notes for a link to purchase you'll find take good care on amazon worldwide take good care recovery reading inspired by the bubble hour the perfect gift for yourself and friends Others find the message of recovery we champion on the Bubble Hour. Plus, get access to the entire backlist ad-free by joining us on Patreon. Patron support helps with the ongoing expense of making free versions of the show available, as well as the cost to make new content like our spin-off podcast, Tiny Bubbles. Become a Bubble Hour patron today at patreon.com slash thebubblehour and help us help others through stories of strength and hope. Michelle, you've made some great comments already, so why don't we, you know, turn it over to you. So why don't you start by telling us a little bit about when you got sober and what led you to recovery? Okay. I got sober in March of 2011. Jane and I, or Gina and I, I think, share a date. It's so fun. Oh, I love not wow. This show, I commented on uh, her blog several times, and I drew, it. I was... Um, very much I'm the same kind of drinker, but at the end, I was sitting alone at home, scanning the internet, try, taking tests to see if I was a drunk or not. It was crazy. And and meanwhile, while I was doing that, pulling open my desk drawer where the bottle of Jack was, and the internet certainly has helped me a lot in my recovery, but I, I've, been, I've been sober since March of 2011, and, and I will, I, my drinking... I drank all my life. I always drank. I, you know, partied and whatever. And but think what changed. Well, I know what changed for me was in January of 2006. My 51-year-old husband basically dropped dead, and he 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 was the most important person in my life. We have a son who I, I adore, but this man was. I was. It was like my everything, and we had a great relationship. 
and a great family. And the rug was really pulled out from underneath me. And I did the same thing as Amanda did. I wrote a lot of stuff, but I don't know how much I'm going to, you know, read it because what sort of I was going with was we hear so much that there's these stages of grief and all this stuff. And um, I actually, when Tom died, my husband's name is Tom, I was lucky enough to get into a grief recovery group. And it was really helpful to me because I was able to sit with people in exactly the same circumstance as me that got it. And I really liked it mm-hmm. at this point in my life. And I think it's why I took to recovery groups was because we were, we were all widows or widowers talking to each other. And we all understood. We all understood the language. And it's the same way. When you're in recovery, you all have the same language. And it's so helpful, Mm -hmm. you know, it's so helpful and it makes it so much easier and something I'm really grateful for. But so when he died, I did not immediately start drinking crazily. In the two weeks before his memorial, I don't even really remember the time. And I know that on the day of his memorial, I was 20 pounds lighter than I was on the day that he died. And I hadn't been drinking, and I hadn't been eating. I hadn't been doing anything. Mm. It was just shock and awe, I guess, whatever. It was horrible. And But pretty immediately, we always drank. And I had already completely was comfortable with the idea of drinking every day. I resonated, so resonated with that, with what Jean was saying. Every day, we would drink wine with dinner. Every day, I mean, we always open a bottle of wine. I mean, that's just what I did. I was already pretty calm and okay with drinking every day. I was also pretty calm and okay with the fact that towards the end of the time that Tom was alive, there were times where I would have a drink and get bombed. And then other times when I would drink a bottle of wine and not feel anything. But I didn't really mm. understand that. It didn't mean anything to me is that obviously it was a progression that was already happening. So when Tom died, I, I think the grief over the death of a loved one is an excuse for drinking and not a reason for it. And it, it, drew, it dragged me over this line that I had drawn on the sand, which was the, which was the alone drinking. You know, because who did I have to drink with now? I didn't really have anybody. For the first while, I was constantly with people. So I would, when I would drink, I would be with people. But pretty soon people go away. And, and I would still drink. And I would drink. And I was going to a grief group. I was working on my stuff. I know I was really feeling it. And the group that I was going to, and actually which I work with now, they don't really look at the five stages of grief. They talk about four stages, four tasks of mourning. And task one is to accept the reality of the loss. And that, that I could do at a certain point. I had to give away the clothes. I had to do that stuff. And I could do that. Task two is to process the pain of the grief. And I was doing that in my grief. I was talking with people and crying and certainly stealing my grief. We had a lot of friends. I had a lot of people to talk to. But at that point is when I really started really drinking. And I stopped growing. I stopped grieving. I stopped doing what I, the work that I was supposed to do. I wasn't attending to my grief anymore because all I wanted to do was not feel it. And I don't remember the exact moment, obviously, but there was a moment, and I do remember the feeling that all of a sudden, I wasn't feeling anything. I mm. could, if I drank enough, I could not feel how sad I was. And that's what I proceeded to do. Now, the, the problem was that, of course, I was going out or I was still hanging with friends or I was doing whatever. And I think I was smart enough. Something inside of me was smart enough and clear enough that would remind me that's not a good idea to drive when you're drinking, to do all that stuff. So what I did, was like I said, sit in my office at home and drink out of, you know, the drawer. I was hiding alcohol from nobody. My son didn't care. He wasn't paying attention to me. And I was hiding alcohol in my drawer in my office. I was opening three and four bottles at a time of wine so that we, you wouldn't hear those pop 
you know, the cork pops. And it, who was our highest? I wonder. And I obviously, I was sort of trying to play it around with myself. So anyway, so I began drinking in in earnest. I would go out, but I would be very careful with what I drank because I knew how much I could do and still drive. And then I would get home and I would drink. I was completely able to wait till four or five o'clock in the day to start drinking. But the obsession began the moment I opened my eyes. When we talk about mm-hmm. the disease mm-hmm. being an allergy mm-hmm. of the body and an obsession of the mind, and that obsession, because I would look at the day and I would say, okay, I can do this. I can be busy here. I can do this. What am I going to drink tonight? And because it, at night was when I had to be there with myself and my feelings, and I just couldn't handle it. And it worked out really nicely for a while until it stopped working. And mm-hmm. I think, I've heard this so often from so many people in different recovery groups, online recovery groups, but just at a certain point, the realization that it's not working anymore hits, and it's a frightening place to be because I did not know what to do. If this was not going to work anymore, how was I going to live? How was I going to live with this pain, with this sorrow, with this this constant feeling? And I really didn't know. I hit my bottom about four months before I actually quit drinking. And on that day, it was 10 o'clock in the morning on Thanksgiving Day of 2010, and I was sitting in the office (laughs) drinking from a bottle of Jack and just knew that, just got a really clear picture that I this is how I was going to die. I was Mm -hmm. drinking to cover the pain of the life of my husband, but this, this was, I was looking at how I was going to die, and just something clicked for me that day, and it took me four months, but I, it took me four months, but I uh, eventually came into a recovery program and got sober. And then I had to keep moving. I had to keep moving sober, and we hear, I, I know as people have heard, there's a saying that, about relapse, while you're why you're not drinking, your alcoholism is in, your, in the closet doing push-ups, getting stronger. Right. And so people who relapse, they, when, oftentimes they will come back and say that it was harder. You know, it's harder to come back. It, it was harder to stop than the first time or whatever. Mm-hmm. It's harder to grieve. I came, I got sober, and I finally had to face all of these feelings. And mm-hmm. this was five years after my husband died. My husband, it'll be eight years this January. I'm sure five years after he died. And it was not as bad as day one. Not, nothing will ever be as bad as the, that early time. But it was pretty horrific. I really, had to, I really had to face a lot of stuff that I had been unable to face, <coughs> unwilling to face. And, and so... I had to, in earnest, then adjust to a world without my husband. And that really became what I needed to do for quite a while. Sorry. I get choked up and I get, I start to cough. <coughs> but I have water here. That happens to me when I have too much emotion, Michelle. Yeah, I, I cough yeah. as well. Yeah, it's really, it's hard. So um, Nine days after I got sober, um, a very dear friend died. Two months after I got sober, my therapist died. It was crazy. <clears throat> so I also had the experience of, of being in the moment with death, but it was all boggled together with Tom. So it was pretty intense. But I, I think that that piece of what you said, too, of that you're likening the grief the second time around to if you relapse into addiction, how it's harder to get sober the second time around. That's a really powerful, that's a really powerful statement. I think it's really true. And the thing is, you don't get to, you don't get to not feel the grief. It's like what right. your, your friend, Amanda, we don't get to not feel that grief. We're not allowed that right. entry. We have to feel it. And, and whether we feel it in the moment, sober, or if we drink through it and we feel it, we have to deal with it four or five years later, just head on, it's not going to go away. And the thing is, grief evolves like love evolves. Love doesn't go away. There's no such thing as closure. I'm always going to miss Tom. I will always do that. I deal with it differently now. Getting back to those four tasks of mourning, the fourth one is to find an enduring connection with the deceased in the midst of embarking on a new life. And, um, 
that's what sobriety has been for me. I really feel like it. it's been a, a completely new life. And in that, taking care of myself and getting sober and getting clear, I have been able to form an enduring connection with Tom. I now lead grief groups. I do, I try and hold the hope that things are going to get better for other people the way it was held for me. I try and be compassionate. Tom was one of those guys that could talk to anybody, do anything, and it would drive him crazy. Like, he would walk into a store and people would, you know, greet you and he would, hi, how are you? He'd start having a conversation. And I would just turn up my nose. I just didn't want to be bothered. And now I have conversations at checkout counters. Say yeah. hi to people. I do all of this stuff. And it's my living amends. Mm. We talked about making amends Amanda to your ex. I don't get to do that. But I do a living amends to him. I, 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 each day I try and I tell him I love him and I remember the life that we had and I have a good life now and which is what he would want and which is what I want and I'm sober and I really think that being sober is a huge part of those living amends to him not only but also in helping my own life so I don't know if that makes sense but <laughs> it makes sense to me and it makes sense I, I that's kind of what I was trying to say like honoring my mother and my ex-husband like I try to do that with my actions today and it is a living amends to someone that's not here anymore, which might not make sense if you haven't lost someone. But to me, it's really trying to be what my mom would expect me to be and to honor, like, my, I don't know if I said this or not, but my ex-husband, he, the reason why he wasn't telling me what was going on and that he was failing so much is because he was afraid, he was terrified I would relapse over it because he knew how, wow. how much my mother's loss had impacted me. So he was being caring you know, caring for me through losing he was losing himself and I'm conscious of that and I when I try to honor that and always keep that in mind if I'm having a hard time. And I also the other thing I do too is I let myself like things will pop up and I'll get sad and I try to honor those feelings and let myself just be sad. Like I'll have a memory will come up and I'll just honor that and, and allow myself to be sad instead of stuffing that feeling. I, I feel my feeling. Right. And it's hard, you know, just to really quickly just touch on, because I know Jen has a lot to talk about, too. It's also hard just to roll back to the holidays, right? Here we are, this happy time. And of course you miss your mom. And of course I look at couples and I go crazy. And this, that's this, these happy times for everybody else. It's like Catherine said, we have to face it, face it head on. There's a lot of people that are not happy right now. And, mm -hmm. and because we're grieving. And that's okay. You know, that's okay. We mm -hmm, do the right. best we can. We barrel through and we don't drink because that is just going to make it worse. I'm just so clear about that. I've accepted every invitation that I've gotten this year, which has been really good wow. for me. It's big for me to do that. Mm -hmm. I'm going to, because I really do want to, I really want to start putting all of this, all that I'm learning in, uh, in sobriety into action. And that's, that's so important. I don't need to sit home alone and cry because I'm alone. I, you know, it's, let's get out there and try and be part of the holidays as I can be. And sometimes it's hard, and, but, it, but I generally feel better when I do it. So but I think that's why it's so important that we're talking about it now, too, so that other people who might be in the same situation know that they're not alone in this, right. this time of year. <laughs> I, I will just comment, too, that don't worry about time. We do have actually a full hour and a half reserved, so we're still okay on time if anybody was getting nervous, particularly Jen. She's, she's waiting here. I only have four minutes. There's plenty of time. I, I will say that in introducing Jen, I just heard something on a program, an Oprah program, Super Soul Sunday. She had some parents on of a child who was killed last year in Newtown. And they said that they had read something that really was helping them where you'll never fill the hole in your heart of the loss. So what you have to do is bring in other people to surround the hole and protect it and, and take care of you and take care of that hole. And thus your heart gets bigger than the hole. It doesn't go away, but it's just, it's protected by love and by your heart. And so I hope that you know, in this show, 
that's part of what we're all doing for each other and for anybody listening. All right, everybody, this is where we leave off for this shorter version of this conversation. But the episode does continue for another 30 minutes, and you can hear that if you join us over on Patreon, where we have the extended versions ad-free of all of our shows. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for walking this walk with us. We're glad you're here. Sober is a great way to live. And if it's something you aspire to, keep going. It's worth the effort. If you are walking this walk, please know you're not alone. We thank you for being here. Until next time, please take good care. I own it. I did that. Not proud, but that was me. And when I face it, I take back a little dignity. Not looking for excuses. I just want to be free from the power. Weakness head on me In a dark corner is where shame lies to hide We think you're strong just cause you'll keep it on the side It just stays in wait there to rob you of your pride Turn the light on, turn the light on, you can shine when you say, I did that, and I'm proud that that was me. And when I face it, I take back a little dignity. I'm not looking for excuses, I just want to be free from power. Oh, yes, and I'm You don't have to shout it out on Main Street to be To confession them ears. The person you should talk to is looking at you in the mirror, and the one who matters most can always hear when you say I'm old, different, not proud, but that was me. And when I face it, I take back a little dignity. Another looking for excuses. I just want to be free from. When you say oh, I did that Not proud that that was me And when I face it I take back a little dignity I'm not looking for excuses I just want to be free from